0: Hey everyone and welcome to the SaaS developer community where we discuss how to build SaaS and learn from each other. And with me today, I have a brilliant guest. I have Dr. Anna Povner, who is Director of Engineering at Confluent. And she and her team just won the VLDB best paper, best industry paper award for the papers that described Quora, the cloud native platform that they built for Confluent Cloud. So Anna, it's so good to have you in the show and just discuss the paper and all those cloud native learnings.
1: Yeah, Hi, Gwen and everyone. Yeah, I'm very excited. And also because Gwen, obviously, you were part of it <laughs> when you were at Confluent. Uh, and also, like, obviously, thank you for helping kind of drive the vision and all the in- input you did. So uh, it's also your win, I think, <laughs> as, as ours. But yes, very, very exciting to have it VLDB and also the best paper.
0: Yes, Anna, um, you're extremely kind to me. But I think <laughs> even when I was at Confluent, it was very much your vision. I am never going to forget how day one, when I joined the team, you told me our mission is that customers will give us their workload and a credit card, and we will take care of the rest. And this has been pretty much my motto about usability from there on. So I think that's pretty much what Cora is all about, right? Exactly. Um... One of the things that I think caught my eye when I started reading the paper. Very early in the first paragraph, you said that Cora is the cloud native platform that is driving Apache Kafka and confirm Cloud. And then you said that this paper discusses the design and the abstractions. And it's pretty rare to have one of those papers really put abstractions and design at the same level. And it really was kind of, why are abstractions such an important part of what you did?
1: Yes, good question exactly. I think abstractions is pretty much like a key right for that uh, cloud native experience. Um, and one thing we you know if you think about like if you want to host your Kafka say, in cloud or any actually system, you have to start thinking about lots of things and it's very complex right You start thinking like oh how many instances, what's instance type what storage class. You know even like you're looking in like one cloud provider there is lots of lots of choices like both on cost and like other like performance uh characteristics like one example like on block storage right you can choose one you have a fixed IOPS and throughput and then you have some kind of burst uh or the other option you can choose like configurable um you know also IOPS uh, storage throughput so there's lots of lots of things you need to choose and then if we talk about like multi-cloud right There is you can start thinking, like, all different core structure. Like, it's, it's a loss of heterogeneity. And so if you start going that deep, like, <laughs> you're going to spend lots of time. So in practice, right, if you go to cloud, what you really want is that, like, you think about your workload, about your business logic. Like, you don't want to really think about that um, complexity. So that's, like, a one big thing. Um, but I would say another, uh, like, really, I would, I would say win-win for both, you know, our users and actually, you know, us as a hosting, um, you know, building um, Quora is that, you know, once you have that good abstraction and the good, um, your uh, contract, right, then you underneath, you can start doing all the optimizations because constantly, right? Hardware changes, software changes. Maybe, you know, have, we will learn something and now like, oh, we have this great idea. <laughs> like say, change your file system. Um, and so that, uh, right? So we can do all that stuff in the background and, you know, we just keep our contract and we constantly deliver this continuous optimizations. Um, and we give it back to our customers. Uh, which actually <laughs> which is very good right <laughs> for both, because like what it means like you know when we do that, when we optimize how it looks like, especially like say like you have a dedicated offering, right, whatever you're still you know buying and what you are actually getting when you're provisioning your you know Kafka in cloud, you're getting your um, what we you call like you basically reserve like units of capacity, right, and that unit you know, of capacity um kind of defines um. You know, just be kind of given this contract. You know, you get this bandwidth or specific workload, maybe characteristics, but that's it, right? And it will be unified across all cloud. Uh, and then, you know, we, do, we basically it's our job then to deliver, you know, this unified experience, you know, predictable performance, and all the you know optimization we can get.
0: So what I'm hearing is that having the right abstractions enables you to innovate without your customers having to jump through hoops in order to enjoy this level of innovation. What yes. are the abstractions?
1: So abstractions, like we have, a, I mean, the main thing is actually just, you know, as I mentioned, you kind of have this, what we call unit of capacity. We call it CQU, but it's pretty like a unit of capacity. It just defines your like a minimum cluster size and also minimum um, Kind of size that your capacity that you can kind of expand and shrink the cluster and that basically and the way you describe it it's like you can get certain amount of bandwidth from it you know there are certain dimensions that we uh you know the kind of describing workload right like connections partitions requests, but there's not many of them it's just few dimensions that you you know just need to kind of describe that what you can fit and that's pretty much it so when you kind of Provision the cluster and cloud, you just say, Okay, that's many CQs you need, but then you can also expand and shrink it. Uh, So that's pretty much what you're choosing. (laughs) Um, You don't really need to think about like any, like no other like uh, details.
0: And then you really took this abstraction, which talks about capacity units, and you applied both to dedicated clusters. And more recently, you also have, I think I saw Conflict launching the ECKU. for the multi-tenant clusters, right? So the abstraction now applies everywhere.
1: Exactly, exactly. Although it's like actually multi-tenant is actually much, uh, I would say uh, th- there are some, and uh, it- even a bit easier because, you know, the abstraction here is more like, you know, in, in dedicated, you still kind of, you right? You have your actual physical resources dedicated to you. So still you kind of, in a way you're like, you know, you kind of reserve it. But in ECQU, it's really just a unit of you know how much you get billed, but it's not really a reservation because you share, there's a multi-tenant uh, setup where you share like with different other kind of that logical cluster, what we call. Uh, and so, yeah, but abstraction is actually the same. You still kind of know that this is kind of the unit you're getting. It just, yeah. you even know
0: this capacity solution. can be the capacity I reserve or the capacity I actively yeah. use at the moment in time.
1: Exactly. Yes.
0: Yeah, that is a very useful abstraction. So one of the things I saw in the paper was you started out by listing the design goals, as one does, Mm -hmm. and it struck me that there were a lot of them. Elasticity and availability and durability and multi-tenancy and all those different things. Did it ever get hard to just reconcile so many goals into one system?
1: I think yes, although I would not say like I'm just thinking back and maybe I (laughs) could forget like you, you pretty much try to deliver on the goals, but it's not mean that like they're really like against each other. Uh, But you do need to have lots of choices actually to make that happen. And like, you know, for example, like we're listing right the performances cost as two different things, but it's a continuous i guess struggle but let's <laughs> or uh, you know challenge of like how do you have this optimum cost performance so lots of your decision kind of driven by that um, right so that's kind of one angle because they always kind of interact with each other and that's when we're talking about like you know when we had to two tier storage to you know to make sure that you can uh, you know two tier storage so you can actually get there and we're talking about abstractions right that we can get there so just just doing that, it's already complex. Um, but, um, you know, multi-tenancy, I think, you know, availability, you know, that's like challenges because multi-tenancy just provides so much more complexity. So you need to do much more work to get this isolation, to get availability. Right. So it's becoming, I would say, you know, in multi-tenancy is a big kind of uh, feature to actually get you that cost efficiency back. But then it's much more challenging to achieve the goals. It doesn't mean that not achievable. you just need to do <laughs> kind of more and more effort to get there um, and then uh, I would say latency um, I mean not actually latency is more related to like why it's hard it's more I'm not sure we listed I need to look back, but the driver the driver of like uh, of, of of the design also comes from that, uh, that uh, um, ability to handle all these variable workloads, right? Because in cloud you don't know what the workloads are predictable. They're very very changing. Multi tenancy add another complexity because then you imagine you have all these different you know potential users. They have different workloads, so that variability becomes even bigger. Uh, and that variability make it harder to deliver latency because you continuously need to keep that cluster very well balanced, right? Because anything like you not balanced, then you, like, it brings to your P99 latency, which what customers usually care. So they all kind of interact <laughs> in a way, uh, right? Something makes it more challenging and it's really just more effort to, to get uh, there.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So basically... It's not so much as there are trade-offs as much as you had to deal with all of them at the same time and build a system that solves for all those constraints, Exactly.
1: exactly. It, it, and it's kind of like, I think you, you've you seen it, right? they like, you're kind of, kind of thinking, okay, what's the common cases, but, you know, there's so many use cases and more scale you get, you get much, much more. And then like the corner case that you consider becomes very common again. And so that, that's where uh, like, it, you know, challenges come from. Yeah.
0: So I'm trying to think about like taking even just performance and cost. Obviously, it's very easy to give high performance if you don't care about how much you cost it's very easy to lower cost if you don't care what happens to performance. But then doing both cost and performance optimization is still not extremely hard if you know the workload. But of course, not only didn't you know the workload, you even had clusters that the multi-tent ones, the workload is extremely unpredictable by design. At any point in time, anyone can click create cluster, starts producing, starts consuming, you have absolutely no way to start planning for it. So how did you deal with an
1: architecture that really needs to be optimized for anything? Um, I think one, I mean, there's lots of answers because basically N goes to that. I think one is kind of keeping, um, you know, um, that whole <laughs> kind of life cycle of, you know, keep it at, Making sure it's balanced, you react, you know, to new workloads, and you be able to like quickly kind of expand uh, when you need to get more capacity to protect your cluster to make sure you're isolated. So kind of that thing has to happen. <laughs> um, so I I, I can a little bit talk more about this. I think it's really interesting. Yeah, maybe we should just walk yeah. through an
0: example. Like let's say yeah. that I join Confluent Cloud, click on I want standard or basic cluster. Mm-hmm. and it says up to 100 megabytes per second. So I'm starting to spin up producers and send data your way. What do you do now, next? Now it's 250,
1: 750 megabytes per second. It's one gigabyte. Sorry, sorry, sorry. how much? Old <laughs> news, old news. Uh, so it's 250, 750 250? megabytes 250? 250 megabytes per second. Uh, oh, 750 and 750 out. Out, yes. So pretty much like one gigabyte total. So we already made progress. Whoa, okay. So let's <laughs> say I'm trying to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, and obviously, scaling, you know, having the higher limit that you can scale obviously make it more complex. Uh, but yes, and actually, I want to say, like, you know, you, you kind of that's like from one perspective, but like it, it, when you say multi tenant, right, we actually, you know, we actually have like clusters in popular regions which have like thousands of tenants. And uh, the ones like, and, and right, the fact that you can actually create a cluster and just like kind of keep it there until you run the workload because you're paying for what you're using, it may, m- means that like you have all these potential like tenants which sit there doing nothing. We actually had, of funny, someone in my team called them a sleeper agent. <laughs> so they sit and suddenly can just like come out so generally i mean we do i mean because of multi-tenant you know because of economy of scale we do keep um and quite, quite some headroom so it's not like it's not that like one tenant comes up and suddenly like you you need to like quickly react so we do have extra capacity um, you know but it's always statistically it's always can happen that suddenly just like you need more than you need but generally even if one tenant right need to scale right away Right, it's it's not guaranteed that like you nicely just distribute all your load across all the brokers and like it just good. right. So often it's like you don't know you can just have more loads just come to one broker and it just come from that Kafka, um, you know, model where right you just writing to like you need basically writing to brokers or reading where you have replicas, right? So depending where your data you need to yeah. Uh, so you
0: know, for example, data. if I use some kind of partitioning key and A good example sometimes is the stock market. There is a lot more Apple transactions in any given day than most other stock. And if I have a partition for Apple or even a partition for A, which has Apple and AT&T and all those, Mm -hmm. it it will be one broker taking a
1: very large chunk of my stock updates traffic. Exactly. And so if you do that, so obviously we do have all the protections, right? We do actually set, like each broker have protection like on bandwidth because we always need to make sure there's enough space for applications so you always data you don't lose any data but then protection on just not being overloaded and queues so all that happens right but it's not a situation when you want to it has to be very very short and temporary because then your latency any throttling kind of increases your latency for some application you can be really really sensitive to that so it's kind of like, you need to have those protections, but then you need to quickly <laughs> also your, like our balancing algorithm have to quickly react and start rebalancing. And that's where like, like the, the two tiered architecture important because you we don't need, we don't want that much data to move around. So we need, that's where like kind of that comes in. Um, and, and then you also, if you don't have enough capacity because we don't have to keep that enough buffer, you need to start scaling. So all that needs to start happening. That's not even all it because it also kind of applies to in the dedicated. You also have all this situation when you need to have the isolation between tenants. Um, and so, obviously, we have all these quarters. We talked a lot, like, we have a bunch, like, even our blog post talked about it. So, we do protect uh, our all the resources, you know, tenants between each other with quotas. But it's always interesting, like, what happens when you suddenly not have enough capacity. Then, like, you need to make some hard decisions. So we have all this, uh, you know, mechanism with auto-tuning. I think we talked also, uh, that's, like, we did a while back that we just make sure, like, when you don't have enough capacity, you quickly, like, squish everybody quota. You know, you provide, you know, um, some kind of fairness. But then you quickly have to have this, you know get back to your enough capacity yeah, exactly. Back. So, as you said, this the application of quota has
0: to be temporary because otherwise my application will suffer.
1: Yeah, uh, what do you do next? Um, exactly. So, and that's pretty much basically like balancing and then expansion, right? All that elasticity have to just take place because you really you continuously need to try to make enough space for everyone, um, right? So, that's like basically. What
0: and do you, like, is so? and sorry if I'm asking for details you can't share, yeah, <laughs> just yeah. tell me. Yeah. But do you only apply, start by, like, applying the balancing processes when someone spikes or when a limit is reached, or is this something that just continuously you are trying to optimize workloads and shift things around?
1: It's more, I would say it's more a bit in between, because it is continuous in a way that we don't want to go to the bad state. So... Uh, Right. So I'm only talking about the actually, that's a really good question, because I realize it might sound like we always wait till the end before you rebalance. Actually, that's not true. <laughs> so that's like a kind of a worst case. I'm a very worst case mm-hmm. scenario. have <laughs> a worst case scenario thinking. Uh, but in practice, right? if you have like start getting imbalance, we we continuously rebalance. But we need to be also careful, like we don't just rebalance for the for the perfect, perfect, perfect case, because rebalancing itself is overhead, right? Even just thinking, like, of course, we do keep enough, like, just, you know, capacity for rebalance, but rebalance is also somewhat a bit of distru- disruptive, right? Because you, you're you moving replicas, uh, you know, you, the update, metadata needs to be updated back to client. Client has to reconnect. So you need to also be careful, like, that you don't rebalance as as often. So we keep that, basically, we have some thresholds, so we rebalance, before we get to that situation, unless somebody spikes, like, you know, there are certain, uh, you know, corner cases, um, but we do rebalance, but just not like trying also kind of not to get to that place when it's just like, the oscillation, right? You're continuously moving stuff. <laughs> so it doesn't want to happen. Uh, one of the things
0: you kind of mentioned, I think one of the things with the paper, it goes over very much breadth, so yeah. nothing is super deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, when you mentioned uh, the dynamic distribution of quota, that's between tenants sharing a broker, or is it something that is more between brokers as well?
1: Oh, it's between brokers. So it's actually a pretty simple concept, and I, I think it's uh, also been like already, you know, it's a known uh, technique. I think in systems, uh, right? It's really more about like, I mean, obviously you give like you give certain. M- you know limits to the workload, right? Like say when you buy, in, as we mentioned, you buy in like some standard basic cluster. You buy in up to certain sort of bandwidth, right? So we need to have these limits to kind of at some point stop you from using like the whole cluster. Um, but then, so that's like one limit for your whole you know logical cluster. But in the end, right? Because Kafka is distributed system, you need to like it's still things happening per broker, and so we need to give certain like what we call slices of that quota to broker. Um, and like early days, uh, and you know that we had this like you know most simple thing. Let's just like you know make it static. Like let's just give certain same slice on broker, uh, but it doesn't actually work, right? Because like we don't want to make a case like oh you every like say tenant using exactly same per broker. They can be different depends on usage. So dynamic quota is basically been more kind of relaxed. We're just making it's kind of like more flexible. You know you want this use this resource in the broker, you get it. But of course, if we start like kind of having issues with other tenants, we start like balancing. (laughs) Um, And then it's really much dynamic meaning that like, you know, it's it's constantly kind of looking at your usage. And then if you need it kind of changes because you still need that kind of somewhat central place you like that you know that overall, you're still not using too much resource like in a cluster overall.
0: I think I got it. Yeah. What another thing that you kind of mentioned in the paper that was very interesting to me is that you're using a cellular architecture, which is, I think, something that only now has really become kind of a popular best practice that everyone is talking about and discussing. And it uh, it used to be almost like the best kept secret of large uh, providers. And can you share a bit about why you went in that direction and the benefits you got from it?
1: Yes. So that's very interesting because I actually learned. (laughs) And I think this learning can be even applied to like even on-prem systems. And it's the one part is, um, right, the use case that we have is multi-tenancy that you essentially have like a smaller tenant, that smaller meaning and capacity needs that would run like on much bigger physical cluster. And normally in Apache Kafka, you have the, the, the mechanism to kind of place partitions on when, when you create a topic, right? You basically distribute them across all the brokers, because the idea was that you want to get much parallelism to get the best performance. And it's mostly was, I guess, you know, design when it was more static system, maybe less kind of workload or maybe application on a system. But what happens, right, so one thing is, like, even if you think about really large uh, deployment, even on-prem, like, if you have this, like, you know, that central nervous system, right, that that you have the central pipeline, the Kafka that's used by many teams, application, essentially, is also multi-tenant. And then, you know, if you start, like, if you need much smaller capacity, but then you essentially, like, you know, spreading the tenant across all the brokers and every broker just hosting every tenant—it's just not very <laughs> good for just uh, reasons uh, like you just even say you know some uh, storage degradation happened on a broker, right? You're kind of losing temporary capacity, and then every tenant impacted. Or something happens like you know some workload, some doing some weirdness, and maybe you have some isolation gap, then you impact everybody. So you don't really need to do it. So that's kind of was our original actually reasoning that, you know, you don't actually want to spread all the tenants thin on every broker. You want to actually kind of try to like, you know, put them in a smaller subset of brokers just for for, for isolation. Um, but the other interesting observation that, which is now when looking back, I think it's very, you know, uh, obvious, <laughs> but it uh, was not obvious, I think, at the time is that, you know, even for performance, you don't you really want to spread partitions in a just enough brokers to get enough what your performance you need. But once you start adding more brokers, you're moving partitions, then what happens? Like every client has to connect to every broker, then you have less batching, so you're kind of splitting your request, and then you essentially adding more brokers, you're actually adding more load.
0: <laughs> this is such a huge point. I mean, so we've seen so many cases where people it kept adding brokers, and why isn't my performance improving? It's exactly. because after some point, you're also adding overhead, as you said.
1: Exactly. And so sometimes like you can see, like, oh, actually, why do I have more load? Like I have a bigger cluster, but more load, what's going on? And it's only because you're requesting connections, taking taking resources. And so we're like, actually, you don't want to <laughs> you don't want to add that. You ideally, you actually ideally you want to have just enough brokers but obviously like it will be too complex just to do it. But um, that's where cellular architecture helps. And what it is is just, you say, okay, there is like of brokers, it's a cell. And that tenants would kind of stick to that cell, but not permanently because of course you can move if you need capacity, but it's more about kind of trying to constrain to your tenant and less brokers. They will still share, but it's less sharing, but also it's good for performance. And actually in a paper um, we did, we have uh, provided results of one benchmark uh, we have details, but they actually saw a 20% improvement, you know, going from no south to south with the same workload. which is like, that's actually pretty big. <laughs> I did, we did not expect that.
0: <laughs> I think a few months before the paper was published, to, I think it was maybe in May, I was in a conference and I talked to someone He told me about, uh, I don't even remember the company, but they told me about how they were struggling as their Kafka cluster became bigger and bigger they are cyber companies, they ingested a lot of logs, it just kept growing. And then they solved a gigantic list of problems that they had by moving to cell based architecture. And he was so upset (laughs) when why doesn't anyone talk about how you can solve all your Kafka problems <laughs> by <laughs> moving to sell? Okay. why aren't you telling anyone? So now you are telling people.
1: <laughs> okay, yes, exactly. I was also, that's like, and we're learning this, where like, actually, it even, uh, you know, makes sense. So just like multi-tenant is in our multi-tenant offering, but just any large deployment, like you don't need to sp- Right, because you even want to kind of isolate your applications and make them more performing. Exactly.
0: It it really is a best practice for very large clusters, and I think something that has been under-discussed so far. So I'm, I'm glad the cat is out of the bag. One thing that people always expect from cellular architecture, and I think it's partially because AWS talks about it a lot when they discuss cell architecture, Mm -hmm. is that cells will also increase availability. They often call cells availability zones, uh, fault domains, they have a lot of terms that imply that you shouldn't be thinking just about performance or even at all about performance
1: it's all about availability have you seen availability improvements as a result oh definitely and it actually was like uh I, you know that actually initial reasoning to move to sell so performance was not I guess initial for multi tenant uh, it was really more availability and specifically that blast radius I'm talking about right because anything happens on say one broker it just then every tenant is impacted. So once you go, like, you know, basically, like, any any issue, and obviously, like, in cloud, like, lots, you know, the failure is very common. Uh, it's more that, like, now, you know, any failure, the impact is much more contained. So you see that of just generally availability. Um, and, yeah, so just may, like much less, you know, tenants also to impact each other.
0: So let me switch topics a bit from the paper. And really ask you it's very clear that you solved really hard problems like you had a lot of constraints and you didn't really trade them off as much as may figure out a way with a lot of really challenging to implement components that basically answered all those trade-offs and we talked about some of the components that are hard like the quota system that is Kind of complex in its own right. The balancing system that is complex cells. We haven't talked that much about tiered storage, but that's a very critical base part of the system. All of those were really big and deep investments. And some things that you don't always see in technology companies of confluent size, like you see more of it in, you know, giant companies that is literally printing money, they can find fund all those really deep projects. Like you know, Google comes to mind. How did you get the and give the team the space to really dig so deep on such a hard problem without any trade-offs, any shortcuts?
1: <laughs> I mean, it's not completely in the way like we did incremental, right? Uh, improvement. Yeah. So it's not <laughs> necessarily that like, you know, we within- didn't Like, what what do you mean by shortcut, right? Uh, But on the other hand, I would say, like, it's not that, like, uh, you know, extra, right? It's really, like, because, you know, our system needs to support, like, all the mission-critical workloads. You really, it's a requirement, actually, to get to deliver those. (laughs) And especially on, like, on availability, uh, you know, all the, like, I mean, even cost-effectiveness, right, that we actually have customers. Like, all that, in a way, it's actually a requirement. Uh, but you're right. I think the, the part where we, we're doing innovation and we actually there is much more uh, improvements, uh, you know, in the pipeline and a lot of this also kind of making sure that people have focus <laughs> sometimes. Right. It's like, you know, sometimes you make like, you know, you, you do all your like we still also operate all these big clusters. So there is lots of lots of um, like things you need to do uh, daily. But actually, I would say normally when I've seen when we actually did a good progress and made that happen, it's like, you know, you have some small teams kind of really, really moving ahead and delivering that. Um, uh, so I think focus, like I would say, like one of the biggest things there. Uh, to yeah.
0: get. It's interesting because really when it comes to engineers really doing those deep technical innovation, There is two factors that are involved and can sometimes help drive the innovation, but can sometimes hold you back from Mm -hmm. doing this innovation. One of them that you mentioned is the operational load. Like sometimes it, because you see all those problems in production, you can think of really interesting solutions and it's easier to buy the organizational commitment to solve them because the pain is so obvious. The other factor is features, as you know there's always product managers they always want to ship cool new features and sometimes these features can come at the you know you want to ship features fast it can come at the expense of doing this really deep really innovative work especially when it's actually harder to explain to the customers why it is so cool
1: exactly and actually there were times where as like you know, we are just saying, OK, let's make sure, like, especially if we are getting to a place when like we have, you know, more of that operational load. We actually sometimes do stop or not fully stop, but we kind of focus more to kind of more go ahead and get to the better, you know, the system. So we actually and, you know, thanks to our leadership as well. Right. It's also about how <laughs> how we prioritize. But but yes, we do have those parts where like, OK, let's just make that system um, you know better in terms of like getting the availability all those main metrics that actually customer hears because that, that's what they care more that like features potentially um, so so we do that so then we kind of don't get to a place when we fully reactive only thing we're doing is just like
0: <laughs> yeah, this is something I heard from leadership a lot yeah. customers don't care about your cool new feature if the system is down. <laughs> I mean, practice. That's true.
1: (laughs) And and, in the longer term, it obviously improves, right? Because in longer term, like you stop, you kind of maybe like push to like get the you know things to a better place, and then you the longer term that you have time to also focus later, right? So you don't have to that context switches. So definitely, that's like I think it's a big big deal. Since you and your
0: team spent so much time at the really intersection between on the cutting edge of Kafka performance and your customers. One question that I think is still not settled is how much do Kafka users actually care about performance? Mm -hmm. And, you know, now there is obviously Kafka in Confluent Cloud and some other vendors. There is also vendors that say we are much faster than Kafka. There's also now vendors that say we're actually much, much slower than Kafka, but we are better in... As always, where do you see the spectrum in terms of the customer needs that you get more exposed to?
1: I would say pretty much all the spectrum. <laughs> I don't, I'm don't. i not having <laughs> like a uh, specific uh, percentage, but that's very true. I mean, there are some customers or it's like actual application use cases where like you need a super low latency and any like big spike can basically kind of like appear as an availability, especially like you know, there is a big, you know, kind of pipeline of uh, application happening on the the stack, right? So, like, how they designed, like, it's also, of course, like, uh, partially it could be, like, the way it's designed, but still, like, any, like, even reasonably what some, you know, application might not even consider a problem, some application actually do. So, and those would be, like, if you don't deliver it, then it's, like, actually not useful, (laughs) usable for them. And
0: it's, but it sounds like Confluent Cloud does deliver those
1: I mean that's like one of the big kind of drivers, and I think in current you will hear more. By the way, next uh, next <laughs> week um, we'll have some more kind of like um, talks on like how we actually we we did lots of effort into like kind of delivering good latency.
0: Oh, so your team is doing talks at current. About- uh, not
1: my team. There is uh, other team, but yeah, there is some. Um- the pap- some of the paper authors are giving. Yeah, it. exactly, exactly.
0: Yes. Amazing. Oh, so. You mentioned applications that get consecutively slower and that react disproportionately to very small spikes in performance. I want to share. I recently learned that in the front-end and web development world, they have a term for it. They call it the waterfall pattern because Mm -hmm. if you look at observability, and you have those spans when I started an operation where I finished, it kind of looks like a waterfall. The idea is that you make one call, and then you need to wait for the response, and only then can you make a few more calls based on that response, and then you get all the other results. And it's kind of obviously all this back and forth until you finally get the thing you really need. Any latency spikes obviously has huge impact because it slows down everything that comes after this request that just spiked. Uh, so, yeah, just sharing that waterfall pattern is considered an anti-pattern in application design. <laughs> Don't do it.
1: <laughs> exactly. And also, I think the part is not just the latency, right? Because on any levels, right, latency can cause certain timeouts. And so any timeout you have to retry. And it's basically, I think that's one reason it could just com- appear as an availability at a certain level. And, you know,
0: this is actually not just that it appears as availability. One of the very basic tenets of distributed systems is that we don't have any way of knowing the difference between timeouts and unavailability. That's but actually very true. The definition of timeout is of not available is we waited long enough and it still didn't respond. Mm-hmm. Will it respond
1: in a few days, in a week, in a year? Who knows? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think I actually appearing probably here wrong word because it's more from perspective as a you know us you know provider of you know Kafka, Cora uh, right? Like we actually like right our cluster is all up everything is healthy but then should be latency spike but you know and suddenly uh, the you know, the actual user, like, oh, no, it's actually not available. So you don't even see it. So that's also... um, As
0: a client, you just have absolutely no way of telling the difference between something that is extremely slow and something that is not available. And uh, another very common saying is that those nines don't matter if the customer is not happy.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Yes.
0: (laughs) Cool. So I always finish the conversations by asking for tips and advice for people building software service applications. So if someone is writing a software service applications and wants to use Apache Kafka for events, which is a very common pattern, Mm -hmm. any tips and advice in addition to use Confluent Cloud, maybe (laughs) tips and advice to people already wanting to use Confluent Cloud,
1: Okay, let me try. So I think one, I mean, uh, first of all, I think needs to be kind of a bit careful with the kind of configuration. Like I, I think it's very simple at I guess, right? Like try to stick to default uh, until necessary, because sometimes uh, like I see very interesting choices. <laughs> like one very good example, actually, go back to timeout, right? Sometimes I notice, um, you know, people would set like let me set a shorter timeout, hoping that something will. Finish faster. <laughs> I've seen this before. And actually, obviously, it's not true because, you know, if something is slow, then you just basically have your timeouts reconnect. So, you know, send your request. It's just going to be worse. So, like, basically, don't use timeout or small timeout as a config. Kind yeah, of small aspect. timeout is not <laughs> going
0: to get anything to respond faster.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. So I think that's, like, one big thing. Like, you kind of see it. Uh, I think generally the other part, like uh, the pattern, which is like not really doing any anything good for you is when you basically, you know, to send any request to create a new connection. We've seen it. And sometimes there's I think there are certain languages, which is like kind of make it not clear. So you can actually accidentally do it. And then you pretty much, you can have, you end up, you can end up with like really large cluster delivering very small bandwidth. (laughs) because the only thing you do connect in sending requests so that's like another like really bad and like anti-pattern um
0: no those are all really good advice absolutely (laughs) yeah i think the timeout thing it's very subtle i think if it really depends on what you want to do when it times out because if the thing you want to do when it times out is retry as you said, <laughs> it's not going like timing out and retrying is not going to make anything any faster, if anything, the opposite. On the mm-hmm. other hand, if you're worried, hey, if my timeout is very long, then a user will be sitting on the screen waiting for a response. They will not get anything. This is really bad. I don't want them to sit waiting for that long. Then you may want to time out sooner and give a response to on the screen saying, sorry, the. A server is busy at the moment, come and begin later kind of thing. So if you're not planning on retrying in a loop, uh, it actually may make sense to time out a bit sooner. But uh, yeah, obviously software engineering is flexible. You have a lot of techniques on how to deal with the fact that right now the server is not responding. Anything is better than spamming your server. It's just going to get slower. (laughs)
1: Exactly, exactly, because like this, like we've seen very de- in, like interesting interactions, right? Between like, especially when you like overloading, especially like if you think about like your own deployment, right, like you start overloading your cluster, you know, it can, you can even set all this quotas and throttling and then it can interact in a way that you're just continuously reconnecting and just spamming, basically dedosing yourself. <laughs> um, and then like, you know, um, and, and I think the other part is, generally, I think gen- like timeouts is like one of part of this, um, kind of bigger, I would say, advice, right? Because like in Kafka, uh, right, it's you can de- the way design application can impact, you know, how much resources you need, like how much, you know, say instances, because you can do it so well that like you just. Very efficient in bandwidth, like you have minimal CPU, like requests and connections and everything. Well, you can decide it in a while well, in a way that it just completely <laughs> uses us a lot, and you you need to kind of just be more careful on like batching. And that's actually I'm just thinking about that kind of comes back on that uh, the blog post I wrote a while back on latency tail latency, uh, because really that's what defines your performance and better design your workload, you know. It kind of gets you a better latency and better like utilization, so it's all kind of connected.
0: Anna, thank you so much for joining us and sharing a lot of in-depth knowledge and good advice. I have to say, I will have to listen to this conversation a few more times just to make sure I really got all the points. But it was it was really fantastic. It was. I appreciate the conversation.
1: Thank you, Gwen. Thank you for inviting me. I've never been to your podcast. It's very famous, so I'm very excited. I'm finally here.
0: (laughs) I am so glad to have you here. I should not have waited that long, but it was worth it. Yes, thank you.